Well, good morning, everybody. It's, it is so good to see all of you. Good morning from Faith Bible Church. I send my greetings to you all. Uh, this, this marks about a year and a half. I think next week is technically your year and a half anniversary. Do you do that? You know, when you're newly married, you do. You, you do the year and a half thing. Uh, while many of you are decades in the faith, you as a church are still young, you're new, you're figuring a lot of things out. One of the things that makes evangelism, church planting, and leadership development such a passion for me and such a pursuit is Christ's faithfulness to his promises. Because he has made promises, we can count on it and act. He made a promise, he keeps it because he cannot deny himself. And the promise of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, 18 is that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't be able to prevail. Or to say it in other words, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 6. Jesus said he's going to lay down his life for his sheep and he will raise it up. And then he says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, those are really encouraging truths, promises of Jesus. And so they are a comfort for us as a Christian. That's why we do what we do. Faith Bible Church does what it does. You do what you do because of those incredible promises of Christ. And so I'm, I'm here today. Paul and I are both preaching the same passage which I invited Faith Bible Church to listen to my message, and you can listen to his, and you will see uh, what is often called the art and science of preaching. The art will be different. Uh, the science will be the same. Uh, so it is, uh, it is a joy to do this. One of the reasons why we wanted to do this this morning was to, for Paul to remind Faith Bible Church to keep planting churches. To let the church know that this is eternal work, and so training up another generation of leaders, pastors, able members of a church is worth it. And when I, when I look at this today, I say it's worth it. One of the things that we wanted to do for me to be here is for you to continue to develop your resolve toward preaching the gospel Winning, seeing the lost one to Christ, building each other up and being a testimony to keep, keep at it. And we decided a lot of different, we, we talked over a lot of different passages. This is one that applies to us both that we're going to look at this morning. Before I do that, I, I think this will be fun for you and fun for me. Uh, would you all stand up? Would you all stand up? Okay, if you were part of the original, the original Trinity crew, if you were here originally, would you sit back down? Okay, that tells me how many of you have been added since Trinity was planted. That's really fun. Do you think that's kind of fun to watch? I think it is. The Trinity folks, the original starting folks. And there's a whole bunch of you gone on vacation. So imagine what it would look like if it was different. All right, everybody stand back up. Let's read God's word. But I, I just did that because I wanted to see what it looked like that you're a year and a half old and people have been added to your number. And I wanted you to see that as well because Jesus keeps his promises. He keeps building his church. We keep preaching and Christ keeps adding and we rejoice in that. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as I preached in my gospel. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our God and Father, we thank you for your steadfast love endures forever. As you have sent your precious Son to give up his life for us, you have purchased through him a people. You have been gathering them since the first promises in Genesis. You continue to gather them through Christ and his spirit to this present day until the day the number of the elect is full. And somehow you enlist us to be your spokesmen and spokeswomen, and may we be faithful to do that. We pray that you would help Trinity Church and Faith Bible Church be faithful to the gospel message despite distractions, disappointments, trials, suffering, and outright attack and rejection by a culture. I pray that you would help us cling to the gospel of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While it's a comfort that those whom Jesus died for, he will help finish the race. That is an incredible comfort to us. Jesus' promise stands. He cannot deny himself. And at the same time, there are real tensions. Jesus ordains means to accomplish his ends. In other words, just because there is a promise doesn't mean there's no part that his people play. In fact, he ordains us to play a part. In fact, he ordains that believers keep believing. That believers keep trusting Christ. And when the temptation comes to deny Christ... He ordains that believers endure those temptations. So while the promise remains true at a big picture, every individual person has a responsibility in God's plans. Churches must remain faithful to Christ and to his gospel. That's what he's going to talk to us about today. Passwords uh, have, have become a necessity in the modern age. Passwords, um, they're a hassle. I got a password manager. Actually, the church made me install a password manager that gave me one master password and then allowed me to go and change all my other passwords. And that worked as long as I remembered the master password, which I have forgotten. In which case, now I go back to using the same password that I use for everything because it's the one I can remember. And my data is going to be breached and we're going to be penniless one day. I'm really grateful that there's only one password in any difficult situation that you and I face. There's only one necessary. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Whatever difficulty, trial, temptation, false teaching, attack, distraction rolls upon you, whatever long time languishing that come from sometimes just the difficulty in ministry life or just the difficulty in a fallen body. There is one thing we need to remember. And Paul tells Timothy the one thing to remember. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus prepared us for the fact that not all who hear the word will believe or keep believing. Remember Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. The gospel comes, the seed is thrown, some reject straight away. I don't want to hear any of it. They were the hard soil. Some reject after suffering persecution, suffering. Some reject because of the cares of this world. In those two cases, they responded quickly. They seemed excited, but time told who was really authentic and who was not. 
Then, of course, there are those with the good soil. They continue to grow and they bear fruit. And if you read Matthew 13, that fruit, 30, 60, or 100 folds, probably only known at the coming and the end of the age and the judgment. And there's reasons why people give up on the faith. Some go back to idolatry. Some fall into false doctrines. Some commingle a true gospel with an entertaining speaking style. It's the Corinthian issue. Or they turn ministry itself into a false gospel backed by personality. Success, how many people are here or not here, becomes its own false gospel. Paul's in prison. Most scholars think he is, he is soon to be executed. And he's writing his farewell letter to Timothy, who Timothy appears to have gone through a great deal of struggle and strife and trouble and attack from within the church and attack outside the church. And he is weak. He's, he's barely plodding forward, and Paul writes him to kindle and to flame that original calling. One of the things that's interesting about 2 Timothy, if you just even give it a cursory reading, it's all about remembering Christ and his gospel in the face of suffering and persecution. And when you read about Christ and his gospel in 2 Timothy, there's nothing new. He doesn't add any new nuance to the gospel in in 2 Timothy. And that's exactly the point. There really isn't anything new. There's no new message. But there is a barrage of trials and difficulties and temptations. Chapter 1, we have have, um, Phygelus and Hermogenes who have turned away from Paul, fallen into some kind of false teaching. And it's likely the suffering that Paul was going through that made them say, you know, we don't want any part of that. At the end of the letter, one of, one of Timothy's good long-term friends, who was a traveling companion of Paul through many persecutions, finally said, I've had enough. Demas, in love with the world, has departed. You've been a church for a year and a half. Hopefully, it's all been encouraging. And the discouragements are really minor compared to the encouragements of life in Christ. But what happens when a core member appears to be going off the rails doctrinally? What happens when a person who has had the appearance of walking with Christ, suddenly you find that their life has been a sham? What happens when somebody who is an influential teacher drifts to a false doctrine? Those are virtually inevitable the longer you live. Now, those of you who have been decades in the faith, those who came from Faith Bible Church, you know about all those things. How will you endure? What will you look to? And then, of course, there's the everyday things. I, I, remember, a, um, I remember a doctor. My, my mom's got Alzheimer's. She's doing okay. Some of you have, have asked. She's, she's doing okay. Um, and she goes through those memory tests periodically. The doctors have finally started doing those. But they, they make you do three, three things. Like, here's three words. I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes. And then I'm going to ask you if you can remember the three words. And... She'd gone to the doctor long enough to know, oh, he's going to ask the three words question. And so he'd give the three, and she'd, she'd really try hard to remember. And she couldn't remember all three words. Of course, the worst part about it is I couldn't either. <laughs> the doctor told me something really interesting. He says, all it does for me to diminish your mental capacity by 20% is start yelling at you. That's all I have to do. If I just start yelling at you right now, your, I, could, I could shrink your mental capacity by 20% on the spot. 
that can, that can be true. You can forget what you need to remember in a heartbeat if a spouse was a little too critical of something you said or did or cooked or fixed or something you did with friends. Like, you, you could forget all about the gospel in about 20 seconds. If somebody cuts you off, if somebody does something that you don't like, if you suffer some kind of injury or difficulty, it, it doesn't take too much to forget. So Paul gives us this powerful reminder, a truth for us. Big idea, I would say, right out of this passage is that remembering the risen Christ and future with him is essential to faithful endurance. Timothy was, seemed to be struggling with enduring, and Paul is writing a letter to him to continue to endure. Essentially, the main idea of the whole book is to be faithful to Christ and his gospel, even though it will cause you suffering and difficulty. Be faithful. And so remembering the risen Christ and our future with him is essential to faithful endurance. So what we're going to do is just, we're going to look at this under two main headings. They, they fit the passage. There's, there's a who in remembering, and there is a what. They're profoundly personal, and they're profoundly theological. There is a, uh, there's a semi-trailer full of theology. And since we're, Paul and I picked a larger passage, you're going to drive by the semi that's driving 55, and you're going to go by it at about 70. We just, we just don't have time to open up that back door and unload it today. We're going to try to get a, a drive-by of this, but I still think it will have a way of encouraging you. And helping you. So first, remember Jesus Christ and his chosen one. That's the who. Remember Jesus Christ and his chosen ones. Remember Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. His word remains unstoppable because of who spoke it. And he's going to gather and keep his chosen ones. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, verse 8. If we had time to look through 2 Timothy, we could find out about this. There's nothing really new about the gospel message here, but there's the point. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, this particular section is an English teacher's dream because the grammar matters. English teachers, there's at least one other English teacher in the room with me. I don't know more than that. Um, But we wish people remembered why grammar mattered, but lots of places don't teach grammar. But this this one, it really matters. Here, this, this idea of remember is to remember and keep remembering. Continual remembrance. Calling things to mind. Remember Israel's great failure was that they would forget at the turn of any difficulty. Just read Exodus and see how easy it is to go from singing to God for his salvation to grumbling against him. From Exodus 15 to Exodus 17, it doesn't take any time to forget all about what God is like and what he does. Israel's problem was forgetting. Our problem is forgetting. And so here we have this continual call to remember What do we remember? Well, it's really a who. Remember Jesus Christ. Jesus, that name reminds us of the humanity and mission of Jesus. uh, Humanity and mission of God to save us from our sins. Remember the the name Jesus from Matthew 121. He's named Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And isn't that good news? Because one of the things that causes us to forget are our failings. If you've walked with Christ for a few years and you find yourself still sinning, sometimes you end up like, man, when am I going to be like one of these older saints? I'm sure they never sin. Until you're an older saint and you go, am I even saved? Here I am keeping stumbling. Paul says, remember Jesus. 
who came to save us from our sins. I mean, are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Do you feel the weight of your guilt? Do you still find yourself sinning due to remaining sin? Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, friend. Remember him. Remember Jesus Christ. That's not the normal way the apostle says it. He does it here to fit the rest of the setting. Most of the time he says Christ Jesus, so it's not a first name, last name thing if you're relatively new to the Bible. Most of you know that. But if you don't, Christ is second mentioned here because this is fulfillment of an ancient promise that God is going to raise up an eternal king, a son of God. Remember Jesus. He's come to save you from sin. It's, it's God took flesh so that he could be the propitiation or the satisfaction of sin. Christ, who is going to be the ruler over all, the eternal king who, as we're going to find, has, has conquered death. And, and here's immediate good news. Do you find yourself powerless to change certain circumstances? I bet you do. I bet there are all kinds of things you can't change you would want to change. Circumstances in your marriage, circumstances in your government, circumstances in yourself that you can't seem to change. Christ, Christ is God's king who reigns over all he is the god of all primary causes all things are brought into being by him all things he is the primary cause he is the primary owner he is the primary person over all things he is the king of all things and that king has control there are all kinds of secondary incidents even the evil or difficulty that wicked people do jesus the primary cause ordains as means to good ends for his saints lives and for his eternal glory what a comfort remember jesus given up for your sin christ who died was raised is at the right hand and is in charge of everything in front of you so whether it's a circumstance that suddenly had happened to you by that's outside of your control remember jesus who died for that sin is reigning and ruling remember him He is risen from the dead. Again, Paul's really deliberate about the grammar. It's, it's the kind of verb that describes something that happened in the past and its results are imminent right now. And, and the way that's structured, it's, it's uh, describing him. He, he is a risen one. He was raised by God in the past. That's what this particular word form is. He was raised by God in the past, but he is risen right now. So that means he's always victorious over death. One of my, one of those powerful images that always comes to mind when I think of Christ the risen one comes from Revelation 1, 17 and 18. The apostle John is about to get the revelation of Jesus Christ and he, he comes into face-to-face contact with the risen Christ, which terrifies him, drives him to his knees. He wishes he was dead. He faints. And here's what Jesus says to him in all his glory. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who has the keys of death and Hades? Christ has the keys. He is the one who is in authority. Remember him. Paul goes on, the offspring of David. He's the offspring of David. It's to show that God's covenant promise with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 15 and 16 about an eternal kingdom, an eternal rule with a son eternally on a throne. That has come true. It's in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, risen from the dead. Paul says it was according to my gospel. He had, he had preached this so much. It was, 
characteristic of his gospel preaching. You could find multiple examples of it. The, the one that comes to mind uh, really quickly to me is Romans 1, 1 through 4. You can just write it down and look it up later. But listen to Paul's wording. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the scriptures. So Christ is a fulfillment of old promises ancient promises concerning his son who was descended from david according to the flesh that's just the promise that was made god would come to be king through a man through david's line and he was declared to be the son of god in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord this is what you need to remember timothy This is the password. Temptation, trial, failure, difficulty, argument, conflict, lawsuit, you name it. Attack, attack. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Offspring of David. Now, Paul wants to transition. He wants to transition to his example that he's telling Timothy to follow. Okay, here's that gospel. Here is, here is the, the summary or uh, what used to be called shorthand. People used to take dictation before they had keyboards by creating this, this mini language of English. And so you could write words in just a few strokes and, and write things down. This is that. This is not the full explanation of the gospel. There is a shorthand verse of the gospel. And he says, now, here's the thing about it. He says, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Paul was accustomed to suffering. He was suffering the shame and the brutality of the Roman prison system. Most likely he's writing from Rome in the, uh, probably at the Mamertine prison. And the word criminal here is reserved for the worst. Thieves, murderers, insurrectionists. These would all be people who would be ready to be crucified or beheaded if they were found guilty. What was Paul's crime? Why was he suffering? He was preaching another king. A king of kings above Caesar the king. And although in Paul's preaching and in God's mind, having Caesar didn't mean, having Christ as king didn't mean that uh, Christians were to overthrow the government and install Christ as the king. They were supposed to be law-abiding under the kings that God had. Still, this was a constant threat to the social order that there would be another king but Caesar. Paul's crime, preaching Christ, king of heaven and earth, and salvation for all, all who call on his name. That was why he was suffering. So, if you preach Christ, Timothy, you preach Christ, Trinity, Church of Spokane Valley, this is inevitable. There is going to be more than pushback. There will be more than pushback for this unique, singular, exclusive message. But at the same time, there is a solace in the statement because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead so yes we suffer just as our Messiah suffered and as he was raised from the dead we'll be raised from the dead he's going to talk about that in just a minute if he's risen he will raise his followers suffering bound with chains as a criminal it's a it's a powerful picture because this this binding and the chains and imprisonment all these similar sounding words pile up as if oh no the apostle oh his ministry has been shut down the gospel how will it ever go forward if one of the apostles goes down what's going to happen to the progress of the gospel And Paul gives them this great word of hope. But the word of God is not bound. It's not chained. He's using a similar idea. It's not chained. 
I'm chained, but the word of God is not chained. What does that mean? It means at least two things. God created the world by his word. So his words always have real power. When the gospel is spoken and the spirit awakens, the word of God has its power. The word of God is not bound. It is powerful. Secondly, it means since Jesus made a promise that he is always going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, he'll always raise up another speaker. When a church drifts into coldness or cultural compromise or denying a central tenet of the gospel, becoming a false church, does that mean all churches are now dead? Does that mean there's no more light going forward? No. Where one, one place diminishes or even abandons gospel truth, Jesus raises up another. And he always has. And he always will. Where a, an apostle is crucified, beheaded, imprisoned, or chained, God will raise up another. In fact, that's part of what this section is about. Train up faithful men who will train others, who will train others, who will train others. God has been making a promise that through the faithful equipping of the saints, there will be saints in the future. And so I'm chained, but the word of God is not chained. I'm I'm bound. The word of God is not bound. According to Christ and his promise, this mission continues. You can't shut the ministry of Jesus Christ down. You can't do it. You can forfeit it in your life personally, and Trinity Church could forfeit it by drifting from the truths of the gospel, falling into a false gospel, but the mission of Jesus Christ is never shut down. It may be be redirected, but never shut down. If I had time, we'd go to Philippians and see what his first imprisonment happened, the whole Praetorian guard, the whole palace guard heard about the gospel and Paul's first imprisonment. Therefore, therefore, verse 10, as a result of these two truths, Jesus Christ, his boundless or unstoppable word, Therefore, I endure everything. And and here's the heart of the book. The word endurance, the call for endurance happens over and over. Now Paul's giving the example. Why would I endure this jail sentence? It would just be simple to deny Jesus as Lord and say Caesar is Lord and I can get out and I can be free. It would not be a hard, it'd it'd be minutes. Why do I endure? Well, I endure everything. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything. The enduring. I I, I loved one one of the definitions of this. Holding your ground particularly during affliction and suffering. That's enduring. Paul did it. He held his ground in affliction and suffering. For what? Well, one, motivated by the gospel and the glory of God, but also motivated by the fact that since the beginning of time, God has had a plan to call a people to himself and save them through his son and in that eternal plan of God, there's a success guaranteed. You know, Paul's going to call Timothy to endure suffering, back up in, in 2 verse 3, and in the, in the context just ahead of this, he uses three illustrations. First, there's a soldier who endures. He doesn't get entangled by everyday pursuits. There's an athlete who is crowned there's a hardworking farmer who endures crops. The, the point is three different versions making one point. All three of them labor and labor and labor for a reward that is out in the future. 
They continue at it. If the farmer doesn't keep working, he doesn't reap the the product of the crops. If the soldier is unfocused, he loses the battle. He says, we do this because there is a reward. What's the reward? What's the reward? God will bring to himself through your ministry, Timothy, through my ministry, Timothy, through our church, our ministry, Trinity and Faith Bible Church, he will gather the elect to himself, those who he has chosen for himself. The elect, God's people. And instead of bristling at a topic like the fact that God has specifically had names in his mind from eternity past when Jesus went to the cross. He had names in his mind of people that he was going to gather. Instead of bristling at that, you should be encouraged by that because God has people out there who will want to hear and need to hear or who don't want to hear, but somehow you're speaking the gospel to them and there's a change in them that they can't really explain. They, they have souls and minds awakened to the glory of God, and this is why we endure. He could suffer anything for that reality. You notice that last half of that line, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, that they may have full experience of it, not only to be saved now, to come to faith and to believe and to trust and to obey and now become new disciples, followers, proclaiming not only that, but to acclaim the full end that is obtaining this eternal inheritance, that salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's the thing that blows your mind about the end of that statement. It is not merely that we will be resurrected and get to see Jesus in glory, but we will share in that glory. The glory that radiates from Christ goes in and out of our beings that we would share in it. What does that look like? It looks like such power, such glory, such radiance in the eternal state that all of Christ's Creatures and creation echo back or sound back or reflect back the glory of God. Do you have a hard time enduring? This is what you're enduring for, Timothy. This is what I'm enduring for, Timothy. Now, Paul is not saying that there's no responsibility in preaching the word or acting. In fact, there is. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, wields his powerful words through his messengers. He ordains means. It is no less true in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is, a, this is how he has ordained it. So Timothy, keep preaching the word of Christ because the word of Christ is not bound and we all need to continue to pre- keep preaching because the word of God is not bound. So remember the who. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Second, remember the what, or remember Jesus' faithfulness to himself. The, the what here is a trustworthy statement, and it's all undergirded with this idea of God's faithfulness, or specifically Christ's faithfulness. Paul adds something called a trustworthy saying. You can see it at the beginning of verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. Or here's a trustworthy statement. And as a word play goes, there is a, this word pistos, which is faithful or believing. Here, faithful is good. Trustworthy is a good translation of it. And in verse 13, it ends with the same idea. He remains faithful. At the beginning, we have a faithful word. At the end, we have a faithful Christ. That's why this word is so powerful. 
Remember Jesus' faithfulness to himself. So here's the trustworthy word. You could say, remember Jesus Christ, remember this trustworthy saying. And it's probably a, a, a hymn or a poetic line or part of a catechism, something that was repeated. These trustworthy sayings are like this. There's five of those in Pauline writing. And when he says it, they are both personal and have profound theological significance. That's the case here. In this case, this is a poem. The rest aren't poems. This is poetic. And there's four conditional statements. So remember, even though God's sovereign purposes and plans of salvation are sure, they're clearly highlighted. Remember, the word of God is not bound. We do all things for the sake of the elect. God has sovereign saving purposes. And yet there is a real tension and a real responsibility that all his people have. The first line has to do with conversion and it's hope. It's, it's past and future. Again, grammar teachers, every homeschool mom, every homeschool dad who's got to teach grammar. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Here's past and future. Now, now it's true that the kind of faith... In Jesus, that saving faith is the kind of faith that is willing to deny itself, take up its cross daily, and follow him. That was Jesus' call to his people. So if we have died with him, you could say, sure, if that's that's since we have died to ourselves in faith and trust in him. Now that that's true. But Paul's using this specific kind of language. And he's used it in other places very similarly. This is language of unity or union with Christ. Often when we celebrate baptisms, we celebrate the spiritual work that's gone on in union with Christ. And Paul uses a very similar kind of language in Romans 6, 8. He says, now if we have died with Christ, and there he's clearly speaking of union. So what that means is there is a faith in Christ's death that so identifies with what Christ has done and so puts our life into that crucifixion that we have been bound or united to his death and we have had a spiritual death. We have, in other words, given up our life and put it entire confidence in Christ. If we have died with Christ, Romans 6a says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And in Romans 8, this reminds us that there is a sin-defeating power in Christ as we cling to him and as we go to him. There is a rescuing power in Christ. There is new life in Christ who was raised. But as we face assorted trials and assorted suffering and assorted difficulties and assorted distractions, when those come upon us, what what the Apostle Paul wants us to do is he wants us to think across the finish line. He wants us to imagine the tape that the runner crosses, the line that he finishes or she finishes. He wants us to think of the stadium that we enter. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. We will live the opening of Second Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. There is a life beyond this life, and we endure for the full reward of it. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. There, there may be time. It, it could be the difficulty of an attack. It could be a state of depression, a, a piling on of both emotional difficulty, past trauma, no sight of anything good on earth. Imagine Job's situation. And you could think, I just want to die. It'd just be better if I was dead. These are heartening words. 
There is another life. There is a life. We can endure because there is a life to come with Christ. That first one, conversion. The second one is endurance. Again, it's the heart of the application of this passage in much of the book. And in this time, it goes from past to future. Now it's present to future. If we endure and we keep enduring, we will also reign with him. And, and there's part of what it looks like to share with Christ in eternal glory. We will reign with him. Satan's temptations, the flesh's easy distractions, inner idols, outward persecutions, all kinds of things come on us. If we endure through those, there is on the other side a promise or a reward of reigning with Christ. There are times in your life where you will feel like following Christ is another loss. If you're 10 or 11, a bunch of friends get to do things that you don't get to do. And you don't get to do them because they're really wicked things. But your friends are having all this fun doing them. They're having so much fun. They celebrate how much fun they're having. They're talking about how much fun they're having. And you feel like I'm dying to some fun that all my friends seem to have. The Christian life often feels like loss, loss, loss. If it's not, not having the fun that other people have, it's, it's not having the, the reputation or the popularity, it's not, having, it's not having the money, it's not having the things, because as a Christian, we die to ourselves every day, and our ownership in life is different than a, than a non-believer's. It feels like loss, loss, loss. But if we endure the constant, what feels like, set of losses, we will reign, we will be elevated. One of the most interesting statements in the book of Revelation happens in chapter 3 with the church of Laodicea. Jesus assesses seven churches. The seventh church is Laodicea. They're lukewarm. They think they're awesome. They're really, we don't even know if there's any believers there, but there, there apparently are some. Jesus makes this promise at the end he says, I will grant him it, to the one who conquers. That's, that's the word of saying repents and remains faithful. To the one who repents and remains faithful. It says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Read those letters. Read Laodicea and the, the despicable nature therein. And he said, if you repent, you'll sit with me on my throne. Now, I often think Jesus must have a really big throne. Move over. It's going to be big. I think it's a picture of a great reality. It says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat, with, sat down with my father on his throne. Remember in Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve were to rule in God's place as vice regents of the world. They were the royalty under the great high king. They forfeited it by their sin, but there is coming a day in which there is a new garden city kingdom in which we will be, those who are followers of Christ and those who endure to the end, they will be co-regents with Christ. Given a place in an eternal kingdom. It's worth enduring for. It's worth enduring. We have conversion. We have endurance. The third line has to do with apostasy. It has to do with apostasy. Here it takes a turn of warning. We have future, future. Past, future. Present, future. Future, future. If we deny him which is a future, if we deny him in the future, some point in the future, and that this word for deny is, is disowning, repudiating. If we deny him, he will also deny us at the final judgment. Now, Paul, you said us. I mean, you can't mean that. You used the us word. That means, that means people who profess Christ might be able to turn away from Christ. 
Because he uses the us word. What's he talking about? Well, first, let me say this. There, this is a plain summary of Jesus' words in Matthew ten thirty-two through 33. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is, a, this is an end times final judgment. You can only disown someone or deny someone who you've had a strong bonded relationship with. A father... If his son or daughter did something absolutely despicable in the ancient world, they could be disowned from the family. Still happens in many places in the world. You can only be be disowned with a close, some kind of close relationship. And Jesus warns about this reality. How do we reconcile that God has elect who he chooses, who he gathers, who he promises to keep, and this idea? Here's the reality. Only God knows those who are truly his. We can have reasonable confidence and assurance. It's called assurance by the faith and by the pattern of returning to Christ over and over and over again. By the, by the pattern of keeping with Christ, we can have assurance. And there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to your assurance. It's First John. I write these things to you so that you'd know. But if you live long enough, you find somebody who seemed to make a good show stop making a good show of the Christian faith and walk away. So there is a tension or a reality that if we in the future at some point deny Christ fully and ultimately, he will deny us. Now, are there temporary denials? Yes. Peter's is... The classic example. He denied Jesus at the first midnight trials of Jesus. And Jesus restored him. There are temporary denials, temporary unbelief, and then there is a permanent denial or a permanent unbelief. But these are set as warnings, much like the warnings in Hebrews are set for us. There is a line about apostasy. And finally, there is a line about unbelief. It's present, present. Past, future. Present, future. Future, future. Present, present. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And this end brings us to that jarring conclusion. Faithless. This is, this is a word that's often translated as unbelieving. If, you're an un, if you have unbelief. It's difficult to tell if this is a temporary unbelief or if this is a permanent unbelief. Just, just let's make sure we leave, leave a couple things out there for you. We do know this from Scripture. God's elect do stumble in sin. They do. This, the same book that gives us the strongest encouragement about our assurance also says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here is this promise. He's not saying that if there's ever a moment of unbelief, which is always the root of a sin, it's an unbelief that turns to pride, that turns to something else. He's not talking about a a temporary nature of sin. So some like to take this as, well, if we're unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. A lot of you quote this as a comfort, you know. I might be unfaithful, but Jesus is faithful. And it is true. You should be able to say that and we could get an amen. Jesus is faithful. So a lot of people, people I really admire, say this is, this is that temporary kind of unfaithfulness. Here's the contrast. If, we're, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
And both are the remains and, and the unbelieving are present. There's others, and I'm in this camp, Paul's in this camp. We, we think he's talking about a life of continued unbelief and Christ's faithfulness. You can't actually have a then that's anything but this. If we remain, if we are unfaithful, Christ is what? Christ is unfaithful? I mean, you had these pairings. Like, are we going to go there? If we endure, we're going to reign. If we deny, he's going to deny. If we're unfaithful, Christ will be unfaithful. Well, that's not a good answer. And that's not true. No, Christ is faithful. What does he faithful do? First and foremost, to himself. He's faithful to himself and his character. This is just what he says, for he cannot deny himself. And I think he's pairing them. The first, the first two lines are about reward or future the last two lines are reward in the future the last two lines are about apostasy apostasy and unbelief and the future judgment of that so based on the poetry based on the grammar and the grammar is continuous he's talking about a continual person in this and christ is going to be continually faithful to his own character and so this last gives us a solemn warning about apostasy and unbelief. Jesus will be faithful to his character of justice, judgment, wrath, and fury. No, a true believer cannot be lost. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. He will keep his sheep. None of them will be lost. This does not speak against eternal security, but it does speak to the Christian's resolve and need to persevere. That's why the historic doctrine that is part of the doctrines of grace, the final one is called the perseverance of the saints because the saints really persevere. They don't go into unbelief, into an untold, endless cycle only to be resurrected on Judgment Day. He says, you know, at one time you were seven and the pastor called you up front to ask Jesus in your heart and you did and so I had you then. That's not what the Bible teaches like that. Didn't matter how you lived your life from seven on because I, I did the one, I, I, I shook the dice and I rolled them out and I got the right one, Yahtzee, and was done. No, the person God saves really perseveres. He really perseveres. She really perseveres. Hebrews gives warnings like this. Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not, that's, that's Christ who's speaking from his accomplished and finished work in heaven, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape, talking about Israel, when they refused him who warned them on earth, Israel, under Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God warned, Moses warned on Sinai for Israel, now Christ is in heaven and he warns. We persevere. It is part of the great reality of why you need a local church where people know each other. Lest you be caught off guard by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 tells us. The confidence that you and I have to endure in the faith, even against temptation, failings, various trials, is not based on us, is it? It is based on Christ's consistency and promise. That last line, for he cannot deny himself, buttresses the promise, if we died with him, we'll live with him. Why? Because he cannot die, he cannot He cannot deny himself. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. All of those truths buttress are all, this buttresses all of those truths. 
So when we come to him for forgiveness, we can count on being forgiven because Christ cannot deny himself. Trinity Church, you're crossing your year and a half mark as a church. Some of you have been believers for decades. Those of you who uh, sat down first, you know, part of the original core that came here from Faith Bible Church and we're here. One of the things that I pray would make your evangelism, your church planting, your leadership development passionate is the fact that Jesus can't deny himself. That he cannot deny himself. And as a host of other things show up, like um, I really needed to quickly respond to an email and a website and travel booking. And I go to the travel company you know, my carrier, and I can't remember my password. And I can't remember my master password. I'm toast. Stress, difficulty, distraction, failure, the password. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a familiar word. There's there's nothing here that's new in the Bible, this new application, but it's what we need to remember. It's what we need to remember. So I pray for married couples who at their next strong disagreement would remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. I pray for kids who have not yet put their trust in you, kind of going along with mom and dad, that you would bring their faith to crisis and they would remember you and look to you. And I pray as discouragements naturally come in the Christian life, they seem to sometimes flood upon us that we would remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He's faithful. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.